Hi, my name is Pieter van de Kerkhove, and today I am interviewing Dr. Christophe van Este. He's a dear friend of mine. I really enjoyed the interview. I hope you will as well. Christophe's interests are cancer and its development, specifically related to the embryonal cancer neuroblastoma, and he also is interested in the development of the sympathetic neuronal system. His focus lies on repetitive stress and secondary DNA structures such as G-quadruplexes and how that impacts development or cancer stem cell maintenance. His interests are any kind of omics data he's interested in and the integration of such data, network analysis and text mining. But as you will see, we will go into great detail about the methods that Christophe is using. He's going to explain more about machine learning we will also talk about the difference between machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep neural networks, and other very buzzing words now today in the health innovation field. Christophe has been a great, great person to interview. He really goes in depth in some of these technicalities of DNA research and, and machine learning, which most of us probably would never have heard about, but he really tried to at least explain it in a clear, clear way. And I really enjoyed uh, to talk to him about this. So I hope you will as well. Christophe, thank you for being here. Thank you, Peter, for inviting me. So, Christophe, I know you quite well. We've been, we've been friends for quite a while. How would you describe your background to other people? So I, I did a, a PhD in forensics, um, investigating forensic uh, DNA Profiles with uh, a new uh, DNA sequencing uh, equipment. After that PhD, uh, I pursued a career in uh, neuroblastoma uh, research, investigating this uh, pediatric uh, cancer. And currently, I'm doing a postdoc uh, at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, working on text mining and machine learning on medical uh, data sets. You're not only uh, a bioengineer by Bangrad, but also a philosopher. How do you see yourself as a philosopher or engineer or, or a combination of both? I see myself as an uh, engineer philosopher, so as a combination. Philosophy is the beginning and the end of, of the things that we try to do. It's uh, where do you find purpose, what should you do in your life? What should you research? How did you come to move from bioengineering to, to philosophy? So I was first studying bioengineering for five years. And at the end of that, I still didn't really know where I wanted to go uh, in my life, in my um, career, professional career. Um, and I, I was just... Uh, genuinely interested in philosophy so I wanted to um, dedicate a few years of my life to, to studying uh, the beginning of uh, how our human civilization uh, started to, to build up um, scientific knowledge. You mentioned scientific knowledge and you have a strong interest also in, in epistemology. How did you uh, how, how would you describe your, your research in, in that field? So what I currently try to do uh, with the text mining is uh, finding a contradictory statements within the, the medical uh, scientific literature uh, output. Uh, so the, the scientific 
scientific knowledge is growing not because of one person, one scientist helping everything to advance, but by the community of scientists doing many different experiments, having many different views um, and hypotheses of how the biology is working and, and uh, responsible for, for, for different aspects of disease or normal biological uh, functioning. Um, so you get different statements about uh, how something works in biology and I try to extract all statements about the specific functionality related to specifically genes um, and if we can find contradictory statements for all the different genes and if we can then have a broader picture on, on how um, the puzzle pieces fit together. You, uh, you actually went uh, to start out uh, from the University of Ghent of the philosophy, but then you decided to actually study philosophy abroad in, in, in Kafoskari and in, in Venice, where we both studied together. Is that, is that because you also wanted to explore that epistemological aspect more, or why did you go to, why did you want to stay in Italy? So why did I go from Ghent to Venice? There's different reasons. One is, of course, the weather, which is <laughs> more agreeable in Venice than it is in, in Ghent in Belgium. Uh, the other one was also the climate of the philosophical debates. In um, Belgium, uh, it's a, a, a very non-religious country by now, uh, but in the philosophy departments, there's still... Uh, a lot of focus on religious debates, let's say. But the professors there are kind of preaching to the choir. Whereas in Venice, there was a more interesting uh, mix between people uh, believing in a certain religion and, and, and people uh, having a more atheistic or uh, agnostic uh, outlook uh, on the world. And so the debate that I hear going on there in the classes was much more alive. So now I'm also living in the Mecca region where there's also a lot of um, Muslim believers. So that aspect, it has nothing to do with the science that I'm doing, but I, I find it uh, culturally uh, interesting. So uh, to linger a little bit on that point, because a lot of people might be very surprised to know that you are now living and working in Saudi Arabia and King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. What's your experience there? Is there a lively debate going on, just like in Venice? What do you mean with a... Well, philosophically, um, not, of course. Um, but the, the science, um, they have the awareness that, that you need to have critical scientists to go... Uh, ahead uh, with science so uh, we're not being inhibited in, in any way to pursue uh, the science that we need to do um, and and we're getting to have this kind of cultural ex exchanges mm -hmm. um, seeing how the life is there so yeah I don't have any complaints about about working there mm -hmm. um, we might get back to that later on uh, when we're discussing your specific projects but we were talking about your the start of your career as a engineer philosopher and your interest in in 
also in epistemology. And you also worked on that for your master thesis in in Kafoskari. It was an important topic for you. What what was the what was what was so interesting for you about epistemology? So I studied evolutionary epistemology, which tries to build up a theory um, on how knowledge can grow, uh, making an analogy with how a species get adapted uh, to their environment. Um, so personally, at, at a fundamental level, I'm a, a radical skeptic. I, I don't believe in absolute knowledge about anything. But clearly, we, we're all living in this world that we're sharing, and we're all living in a way that seems to indicate that we have certain things that we believe in. Like in gravity, um, there's few people really disagreeing on that, for example. So how does this kind of knowledge get established and how does it, does it grow uh, in our minds and, and the minds that, that we share? Um, and, and so I, I believe that this evolutionary approach uh, just makes a lot of sense to that. It also helps you understand how things like fake news get get spread, you know, because our minds are not built to be fully rational. Again, there's not an absolute foundation for knowledge, but also how our brain are, are constructed doesn't seem to really, you know, work without without fault. So it, it, it creates opportunities for this kind of memes to spread and and, and fake news and and, and things like this. Um, and having this kind of foundation for how we build up knowledge then helped me kind of just starting my scientific career. Even if there's not like an absolute source of knowledge, knowing that it can build up over time and I can help in uh, getting it to to get to a highest point as, as is possible. You mentioned there is no absolute uh, type of knowledge. Uh, similar claims have been made in, in by Ghent professors like Professor Diederik Batz, emeritus professor now. Do you have you been influenced a lot by this this way of contextual epistemology? Uh, of course, uh, you know all the the professors that that you have during your career, um, they have an they have an influence on you. So. Uh, he was definitely an, an inspiration to come to this kind of uh, contextual setting in which knowledge can start to grow up to a certain point. It might also diminish, giving a certain context. Again, referring to fake news, that's kind of a process that that starts uh, a way in how the knowledge is diminishing uh, because of how our brains are hardwired. So... You are this, or you you were trained as an engineer philosopher. How did and with your interest in evolutionary epistemology, how did you then start with your career in 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 towards more genetics and and bioengineering applications? So after I studied uh, philosophy in, in Italy, I had to go back to Belgium and just find a job because I was just basically ten years a regular student. You cannot. Keep, keep doing that forever. The state is not going to support you forever locally. So I was just looking for a job, and I found this position uh, in bioinformatics, uh, so which uh, uses programming to analyze biological data. 
So I could just apply for this position and, and I was selected to, to start that program. And I was lucky because um, it was analyzing these forensic DNA profiles. So at this point, it didn't involve having to know a lot about the underlying biology. Forensic DNA profiles, it's more like a barcode that we all have that kind of identifies us. Uh, there's only limited biological functionality uh, related to this. Um, so I started processing uh, the biological data um, and, and the, the, the genomic data. Um, and then slowly I also worked on uh, projects that, that uh, had more to do with uh, cancer, for example. So I had one project working on, on renal cancer. And then after the, the four years of the PhD, um, I felt uh, a bigger hunger for this kind of biological puzzles uh, and working on that. And I felt already equipped with, with the bioinformatics skill set and the programming skills uh, to start working on more biological problems. So then I started my research on uh, uh, neuroblastoma, the pediatric uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you're actually working in a very specific, with speci- more advanced software applications uh, like text mining. What is text mining? Uh, text mining is um, is basically only a necessity because of the very unstructured way in which scientists communicate amongst uh, each other. So when a scientist does his research and he gets to some findings that are considered to be novel and interesting to share with with the scientific colleagues, um, he will make a publication. He or she will make a publication. And then, um, but this is just natural language being uh, used in, in the text that they write down. They don't annotate it with metadata to indicate, for example, now I am speaking about a gene, now I'm speaking about its protein product, now I'm speaking about a chemical that we can use about a drug. That's all not included there. Certain gene names are the same as cer- certain English words like hand, which can be a gene. It can also just be a hand that is being studied in anatomy. So there's a lot of kind of ambiguities there. And a lot of knowledge is out there, but it's not annotated. So we need to process all these texts and try to to annotate it first computationally and together with manual curators and then make connections between different kind of topics like between genes and drugs. Which drugs have been associated with certain genes? Do they have an impact on that and all this kind of thing? So this is why you start with text mining and doing natural language processing. The, all those papers are written in the natural language and your the computer is uh, processing all those texts and trying to extract uh, relevant terms. So these can be those genes or chemicals or disease names and finding associations and statements about those um, entities. Your interest in cancer, that's not really a coincidence or you had a strong, you had some personal accidents also happening. What what happened in your environment that made you more interested? When I started the neuroblastoma research, uh, during the this um, uh, initial year, more or less, um, a family member got uh, breast cancer and I also had to be 
genetically screened uh, if I had the, the, the gene that, that caused this uh, mutation. Uh, in the same time, also a colleague got breast cancer. Um, and, and she was working together with me um, on, on some genes within neuroblastoma that are uh, associated uh, with the BRCA genes, the BRCA genes that are uh, very uh, relevant uh, for, uh, for breast cancer. So then I was very interested also in this, this broader topic of, uh, of researching cancer because y you get like a very personal motivation to advance uh, the work in this. I still remember you were also looking at the story then from the family member of a patient and you were trying to dig into the evidence and trying to find the relevant information, but that wasn't so easy for you. Could you also tell a bit more about that? So I, I had to look it up for myself also. So before I got genetically screened, so I didn't know at the time that I didn't have the mutation. I could have it. I could not have it. I only know, knew that my grandmother, in all likelihood, had the mutation. So, so that gave me one out of four chance of also having this gene that really doubles your chance of, in my case, getting uh, prostate cancer. Uh, so then you, you already start doing research, looking up um, what, what does this gene do, what, what's the relevancy. Is there maybe another way of knowing that you have that gene uh, except for doing an actual genetic screening? Might there be other characteristics that are associated with this? Um, so at, at, at a point like this, you become a kind of a, a conspiration theorist. <laughs> So, so when th things happen, political things, um, people, when they're conspirationalists, they seek all kinds of associations that might or might not be true. Um, but when, when people get diagnosed with something or they are afraid that they have something, the same process starts up. You, you, you're trying to look for, to understand it, to see connections. Um, and you, see, you start seeing all kinds of connections because, again, that's how our brain is hardwired. It, it tries to look for patterns. But how then do you know that the findings that you, you think you have found, that, that they really belong together and you're not just seeing coincidences? So, again, this is kind of, this creates a need to do a more systematic study of all the knowledge that is out there. But one person cannot read the whole of medical literature that is out there. It's already more than 25 million papers. Nobody can read that even in their lifetime. So you need to be assisted by computers to extract all findings that might bear relevance uh, for a certain understanding uh, of biology and getting summarized results on that and seeing how there are connections. Because if you're just reading as one person, you start seeing connections everywhere. Mm -hmm. Just to to examine that a little bit further, there are multiple technologies now, or applications of, of software that are introduced to analyze medical data. Currently in the field of e-health, there are a lot of trends and uh, a lot of hot topics circling around big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, 
all this data could help to analyze all this sorry all these software applications could help to analyze the DNA or the genomic data to to uh, to solve that problem. Uh, what is your understanding of these different uh, concepts and which ones are most relevant for us to understand this discussion around uh, genome or or healthcare with uh, genome? So this is a very a broad issue and um, I can maybe reflect back to when I knew that I should be genetically screened because there was a one out of four chance that I might have uh, this gene. At this point, I still had to wait because uh, physicians, they don't want to scare the whole family at the same time. And there's also a cost just for checking one gene um, if it has one specific mutation, there's quite a cost associated with it, and there's a, a large backlog in these medical genetic centers to process all this data. So they will they will do it step by step, and they will first investigate uh, the more close family members step by step. Because, for example, if they screen my father and he doesn't have it, it there was no point in screening uh, me or my brother. So you have to wait a long time before you then know, you know, I could have had this gene and then eventually I don't have it. So during this time, I was thinking about just taking it in my own hands and um, trying to get my own genome sequence, which is already possible. Anyone can already do it. And there are several companies out there. Um, there's different ways in which you can do it. You, you, can, you can still do like something like 23andMe, which has a lot of kind of probes. So they don't sequence you, but they, they look if you have like very specific variants within your DNA. So wait, so that's already, I'm just going to interrupt you there because that's already very different from what we understand of what the genomic analysis is. So one of my friends did it. He just sent out some part of his saliva. Then what I understand from the website is that they run my saliva, they analyze my DNA within my saliva, and then they send me the results back. That's not exactly what you're describing that they're doing. Well, I was skipping a step. Yeah, you always have to send some saliva, some biological material, and usually it's uh, it's saliva. Uh, but the method in which they analyze that can be different. Either they, they have a lot of probes, and they then... Um, see if you have any of those kind of markers and they can like use up to 100,000 probes maybe all small different parts in the genome to get um, you know just a very specific uh, perspective on a person's uh, genomic setting. Uh, the other option is to just sequence it. Just the way that they sequenced the first human genome to, to get to that whole sequence of letters, they can now do that much more quickly for anybody that is interested. They, they can do your whole genome, which will contain a lot of segments that still most re researchers today consider not to be that important as far as very specific functionality um, is considered or that relevant for diseases, for example. Or you can do something that they call an exome sequencing, which will only look to those parts within the DNA that eventually gets translated uh, into protein products. And so if you have a mutation there, one of your proteins might not be working uh, anymore. Uh, for example, people that have 
sickle cell anemia. They have they have a mutation in their hemoglobin, so it doesn't form properly uh, anymore. So if you do a, a an exome sequencing, you can discover these kind of of issues. So you have different possibilities uh, there. Now, in the end, I just waited for my genetic screening because if I was going to do the 23andMe option, it meant sending my data to a company that was affiliated into a certain extent with Google. And I don't know if I want Google to know me that intimately. How is 23andMe related to Google? Well, it was uh, the CEO was the partner of somebody high up in Google. Uh, I should look up who, who it is exactly, but I, <laughs> I'm quite sure about this. Um, now, in any case, uh, there was a recent article uh, in a Flemish newspaper, De Morgen, stating uh, research being done on, on political preference. And, and the article's claim was that uh, a lot of that is also in our genome. So if you now know that um, messages by these extreme right parties is being sent specifically to people with a certain preference, they might also do that by looking into your DNA. Now, I would then probably not get those kind of messages, but who knows what kind of messages they would send me. So I, I, I didn't want to do it now. Now, for my birthday, my, my brother gave me um, a package of my heritage, which works in the in the, the same way. And I have to send my DNA to Texas if I want to know where I originate from. And so my birthday is in March, but I still haven't done that. I'm still <laughs> having a, a dilemma whether I want to send my saliva to the United States of Donald Trump. <laughs> so to come back to the uh, question I asked earlier, you, you explained a few of the ways how people would analyze your, your DNA. Um, but there are, you didn't mention the, the, the buzzwords, so I'm guessing that on an average DNA uh, analysis, there is no uh, artificial intelligence, big data involved. Is that how I should understand it? There is in the background, in the sense of all the research that is being done, now already uses machine learning algorithms to uh, get to the variants that matter. Okay, so let's let's first explain then what is machine learning algorithm. So machine learning is just when you have a lot of data associated with a certain outcome um, and you want to then investigate in which parts of the data that you put into the system can you predict the outcome with. Now if we again just use a, a reference like um, a breast cancer, you might have a group of 10,000 women and, and you know, 5,000 during their lifetime developed breast cancer and the other ones didn't. And then you have their entire uh, genomic uh, composition, let's say, and then you just feed that into those machines to be able to predict, that, well, this person will predict, uh, will belong to the group that will likely develop breast cancer and, and, and another person you then predict doesn't belong to this kind of a group. So basically you're, you're looking for associations with, with the data that you're inputting. Now, now I'm giving an example of genomic data, but it can be any kind of data. It could even be the kind of messages you write in Facebook when you're doing natural language processing or, um, 
the things you like in Facebook or anything like this. Anything that can be represented as binary data can be uh, inputted in, in, a, in a computer. And if you have uh, the labels that you're interested in, in, in the example now, whether a person developed breast cancer or not, you can then try and look up associations, correlations between that. So that is a machine learning algorithm. Yes. And, and within machine learning, you just take some precautions. You will first, like we started with 10,000 women in this example, you will maybe uh, put apart randomly uh, a thousand from each group. And then you will start developing your algorithm how to process the other 8,000 data points that you have with all their genomes. You will then um, find the points that matter most to make these predictions. And after that, you're, you're, um, you're satisfied with how you did your analysis and that you, you, you think you should have reliable results by now. At this point only, should you check within your test results if you can make those predictions that then match the class to which they belong. And, and if you don't, then clearly you did something wrong. So this is how machine learning analysis are generally set up. There's only one issue with it, because even though um, computer scientists know that they have to do it this way, and they do do it this way, they keep working on their algorithms until they get a test result that is satisfactory. So it's not necessarily based on I have a scientific hypothesis about how I should organize my algorithm to get to the correct result. It's more like I'm going to keep trying, playing with parameters to get something that I can publish. So, you know, machine learning doesn't solve everything. Um, and you still need to be careful with how uh, you approach such, such a task. So machine learning, if I can paraphrase, is a algorithm you develop to learn how to process the data in a way that you would like it to do. Yes, in, in a way that you believe is sensible. Yeah. So you, you get a certain type of data, then how should you pre-process that so that you compare, can compare all the different data points that you have? And then what kind of intermediary layer do you use to extract the, the, the patterns that you expect to be in uh, the input data. You might use something like a deep neural network that is now, for example, being used by, by Google or Facebook to recognize images or um, parts of uh, images. But you can also use something like um, a, um, a logarithmic model, something in the middle. And so just to... Uh, explain this a little bit. So you have a machine learning algorithm and then there are other tools you use to assist with the machine learning algorithm? Well, the machine learning, that, that that's just the general phrase. And then it depends on how you exactly conduct that research. The machine learning is a way of working. So you will be separating your data in in the training set and the test set and sometimes even a validation set that is being used during training not to overfit data, for mm -hmm. example. And then you have different kind of models that the data is being pushed through. 
and that have parameters that are being set to be able to make those predictions. And then after you've set all those parameters, then you go and look in the test data that, that you didn't look at earlier if you get as good predictions as you do with the data that your model is being exposed to all the time. Because during training, the model gets to see all the data and it, you know, it gets to know like, oh, so, so this data belongs with this label. So you, you can just memorize. I mean, a person could just memorize, you know, this unique profile belongs to that. And you're, for each, each data point you see, you, you, you just have a way of uh, remembering that, but not really finding the causal relation or the pattern that is really responsible for that. That's why you, it's very important to have this test data, because the data that hasn't been seen before if you then uh, process it through this trained model and the results look more random, then it's like, oh, we're only remembering what we know, but we're not able to predict what, what really causes, or you know, we're not able to predict things that we haven't seen. Even when you're able to predict, so your model seems to be working really well on, um, on your test set, it might be that you don't really know why. The, the model, especially if you use something like a neural network, might okay. be seeing the I, pattern. It's the second time you've mentioned now a neural network. I think it's time also to explain uh, or deep neural network or neural network. What is that? Yeah, so a neural network, it means that you're using something similar to neurons. So it found inspiration in biology. So th for, to know what this is, you kind of need to know how a a neuron works and um, a neuron will be activated so it might receive um, signal originating from kind of different neurons um, but even if there's a, a signal in a preceding neuron it doesn't necessarily mean that it will transmit the signal further only if it reaches a certain threshold Will it then advance the signal further? Okay. This is, you know, very simplified yeah. how how neurons work, and you mm -hmm. just have many many billions in your brain, and they all wired together in a certain way. So when light falls on your eyes, these signals get transmitted through neurons, and then you know if two neurons next to each other are black. Um, they, they arrive at a certain neuron that kind of recognizes that and at some point it will start recognizing shapes and things like this and how the biology works inspired computer scientists to implement similar computational networks of advancing a signal from one layer to another and this is how we then arrive at deep neural networks it's many layers of these uh, neurons that will pass through a signal, it will be combined, and only at a certain threshold will it be put forward to the next layer. And this way, patterns start to emerge at different layers that are being kind of um, analyzed. So when humans would just read a text, in the morning you read a newspaper article, your brain would summarize the trend or the general message, on a very 
detailed scale, this is what you would try to, to imitate in a with a algorithm where you try to process all the data, but only at a certain level of repetition or a certain conditions are met, then there would be a trend presented as this is the trend that is observed by the algorithm in this piece of data. Yes, more or less. But in the end, so this is the analogy part. In the end, this is um, just calculations with big squares of numbers. So you can translate this whole frac this whole way of operation into big squares of numbers that are being processed and rotated and you know and calculated. Uh, so in that sense, there's not really true intelligence. It's kind of it's just it has a possibility of an infinite combination of parameters. And so when you're putting data through there, you're kind of just seeing um, if if I just manipulate those parameters just a tiny amount, um, would I get a better prediction of what I'm putting in there? So that that's why that mathematically speaking, um, the functions that decide whether uh, input gets passed through, signal through, they need to be something that you can differentiate. That because when you can differentiate it, you can see what the impact will be of a tiny difference. And this way, you can start tweaking all those parameters and you have like, you know, as many layers as you put in there and, and how long those layers are, you know, you can have 1,000, 10,000 parameters and you're all setting them. Um, and, and this way, either you, you will be start, you will start to, to recognize patterns or you might also just be remembering specific data points within this big, um, let's say, squares of, of numbers. And so then, if you're just remembering them, then you're overfitting. If you start, if your uh, if your algorithm is starting to recognize the patterns, then the algorithm is understanding the data in some way. And then it still depends. Sometimes when you get the trained model, you can analyze how it has been set and understand what causes something to be recognized and what not. Sometimes you just don't know. It's a black box. Sometimes you can analyze it to know why the neural network will make um, certain decisions in its predictions. Mm -hmm. Now, when if you don't know anything about bioengineering or machine learning, this may sound like very intelligent or machines that are getting quite smart. And now today there are all kinds of fears of about these algorithms that are really becoming intelligent. We speak of artificial intelligence. How do you look at this trend in, in your fields? Is it, is it really happening? That is, are the algorithms becoming smart? Are they actually doing quite a good job? Or how do you look at this? I think historically, because a lot of this started with recognizing images and you know that's that's how we kind of see ourselves in a way you know we're in the world looking around seeing things happening knowing what's happening we consider ourselves pretty intelligent for that and and now they have found a way of uh, training um, these computers and you, sh you you show them a bunch of images and they start to learn 
how to recognize. So at first sight, this looks like pretty intelligent. But again, it's kind of, you're looking for very specific patterns within the images that then kind of give away to which class something belongs. Is it a dog or is it a, a cat? Now, our, our eyes and parts of our brains function in the same way. They also get trained to recognize these things. But that that's not our intelligence for us, I think. And it's definitely not the intelligence for the machines. Again, knowing how that data is being processed, it might be that it, it finds the patterns that are responsible for that. Yeah, of course, if the patterns are in there, it will find it. If it's not, then it will not find it. Yeah, that's how simple it, it is in the end. It doesn't make it intelligent. It's just processing all these numbers. Now, for artificial intelligence, there's a different field where, um, you know, we're all agents in the world. You know, we're, we're doing things. And now in the future, even already in the present, when you have self-driving cars, they are... Um, they need to be intelligent. They need to be rational agents. They need to behave in a way that we, as conscious intelligent agents, can predict that they will behave in that way. And they need to be able to predict how we will behave. Now, as far as traffic is concerned and self-driving cars, luckily we just have all these rules. So you can, um, you can um, program that, you can use part of that. But there's a lot of unexpected things that can also happen. And when can you predict how a person should behave? There's kind of these moral dilemmas that, that start to happening also, you know. Um, if, if in front of you, you're driving at 120 an hour and in front of you there's four people and on the lane next to you there's one person, should you quickly change to the other lane so you only kill one person? Or, you know, should you kill the four that haven't been paying attention that you're arriving at 120 an hour? So how will you uh, integrate these kind of decisions? And, you know, it's basically there's there's not really a solution to, to these kind of dilemmas, this kind of also paradoxes. Um, but a programmer will need to, you know, decide how the system will behave. So at least the humans should be aware of what's going to happen in such a situation. Um, and they, they will have to behave such as intelligent agents because otherwise that would be saying that they're not predictable. So then intelligence in this setting is just being, are you predictable? Will I, as a conscious being, be able to predict, you know, how this computer, computerized vehicle will behave? There are some philosophers who believe that this human development is not so safe as it seems like. So the story you told us now is that a human developer will look at this, let's maybe not talk about a self-driving car, but let's talk about the 23andMe or any other hospital or medical application, and that at some point um, the algorithm is is able to predict uh, what what you should do in your life to live long and to prevent illnesses. Basically, this application would know a lot about your, would predict how you should live a good life. Um, now, if if 
what you're assuming is true, then we shouldn't fear so much this this evolution because there will always be a human controller, a human developer. But there are philosophers like Nick uh, Postram who propose that there are many black balls in the urn of inventions, and one of them is the is a black ball is is a bad ball, and it could happen that tomorrow somebody takes out of take that ball takes that ball out of the urn, and then he will have invented this application that can radically change how healthcare will develop or how our lives will be developed because he will have invented the smart algorithm, let's call it AI or something, that will be able to predict how we should live our lives based on our on our genome. Now, do you, do you believe that, that this kind of hypothesis are, are realistic or do you think that it will always be steered towards an ethically correct uh, development of this technology I think yeah you, you cannot predict black balls in this way of course so you, you know unless you're just really talking in science fiction terms um, the only way that w- what we can judge about is seeing how the the big tech companies today how they have started to use and misuse our personal data and how they they kind of build up these monopolies and and control uh, how we are perceiving the world, and and they got a lot of free time from the governments to basically do what they want. So this is the the only problem is you know it doesn't really matter what humans or scientists are inventing. At at some point we need to decide together what can and cannot be used. Um, whenever there's just one individual that gets to decide on this, the other 99.999% might not really agree on um, how that's changing the world. And yet, it is only a few individuals that are kind of shaping how our world looks now, today. Mm -hmm. As far as medical applications, and then I guess you're hinting at personalized medicine, which you need kind of an algorithm for personalized medicine uh, to be a, a game changer in this field. Um, I I don't think that that's going to change the the world in a in a negative sense, as long as it doesn't force us. Um, I mean, you will have, based on your genomic screening, there will be uh, reasons why. Should you still have the free choice? whether you should be allowed to smoke or or should this device then um, create a situation in which you don't have a possibility to smoke or it uh, sends out some brain waves that that clear out the desire for smoking? How should that work? This is a question for you, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to host. I'm asking you questions. So... um, I've also been thinking a lot about that, and I I believe that we need to basically rediscover what it means to develop and implement technology together. So my research is about participatory design, and I think if we learn more about how we can co-develop and co-implement technology, then we may uh, circumvent some of the critical issues that you mentioned, such as one person or one monopoly or one company being in a major part of the uh, 
power or the one major stakeholder in the discussion without the others being involved. I think participatory design can be one of the tools that we can use. So I'm wondering, that's what I'm focusing on, but you're also focusing on a lot of these issues. You've actually thought and pitched one of your startup ideas already in Kaust. But what was your, what's the problem you're most concerned with uh, when we talk about uh, genome applications or genome uh, technology? For me, the biggest issue is uh, privacy and how do you protect your personal data? Uh, but how do you still have a, a possibility of sharing the specific data from your genome that you do want to share? Of course, you can only do that if you know at least something about your genome already. So the idea I pitched was for an app called Dynasty, and uh, where you would be learning about your own genome, so you would have your, your genome sequence, but you would then be learning gene by gene what's kind of happening, and um, whether you want to share your personal variants, either with family or friends, or with the scientific community at large. And you would be in, in total control on that. It kind of just came from how I would like to learn about my genome myself and what application would I want to use for that. And again, I am not currently satisfied with the options that are out there. And I'm currently not absolutely sure if I can trust all the providers that are uh, out there. So privacy and having control of your data, it is a huge issue today. I think we should add also for those who are listening and who don't know that it's not only something that is playing in, in genome or DNA applications, it's basically related to everything currently that's on the internet because the the major business model of services that are provided on the internet are using marketing and they are using our data as a source of revenue. So basically, you may have the impression that you are the consumer of Google and Facebook, but actually you are part of the product. You are part of the bigger product, which is selling your data en masse to other corporations to make profit out of that. So the context is very, very important here. And because we are talking about scale, we are talking about the data or the personal data of, of billions of people. So it is an important issue. However, it sometimes seems like we are still focusing on this concept of privacy of 100 years ago. So how do you look at privacy today? How would you deal with this uh, problem today and with your with dynasty, for, instance, for example? I think privacy in the end, I mean, there's, there's two aspects to it. It's like how extra or introvert do you want to be? You know, that can be very personal. The other aspect is how protected do you feel with a certain amount of your data being exposed? Now, you know, at the end of the day, for everyone, money is important, right? So, uh, but we're also insured that that we get, if we get a certain condition, we will be treated, you know, the community will look after us. So as far as being protected is concerned, 
Um, now, all of us, basically, we don't know if our genomes are being sequenced. What might an insurance company find there that they decide, like, well, I'm, I'm giving you a good deal, but, you know, your brother or your neighbor, well, he's going to have to pay for your good deal because I, I see in his genome that he's likely to die 10 years earlier than you are. So now, now is the moment to ask us this question. Now that nobody still knows really what deck of cards that they are, hand of cards they are being dealt, you know, do you want to be, um, you know, social? Uh, um, do you want to share the cost? Or do you want to, it to be uh, individual? Um, when you don't know, most people will tend to be, you know, let, let's let, let's remain social about it. Um, but as time goes by and then if this becomes just, you know, you have a baby born, its genome is being sequenced, you know, how will society look at that point? How, how will it impact us? Um, we need to ask us these questions before it's too late. Not in, not in the sense that too late, you know, when this has happened, it, it will happen. Mm-hmm. And and to to come back to one of the aspects you you mentioned here is is cost and one of my co-producers colleague Frederick Tillen he also said look there is very little ev- evidence currently on the cost and the cost effectiveness of these genomic treatments those are very early still in the in the development who's going to pay for that and where do you see the costs are going to be the biggest. Do you have any opinion on how, how will society deal with with these new type of technologies? Will there be similar costs to what we have now or will there be different costs? First, the question, he was talking about genomic treatments as in the, the CAR-T treatment that is quite famous now for leukemia patients. So there's, there's a, a massive cost there to develop this. Whereas, you know, here we were just talking more about having the genomes being sequenced and having that information available, which can also already be medical, medically used. So there's a, a different cost analysis for both cases. So I'll, I'll first address just having our genomes being sequenced. So now you can probably do that for 200 euros. You could already get enough coverage to get insightful findings. The only problem is we still don't know if you do this en masse how to communicate this to all the people and um, also how to extract all the relevant findings there. So it's still difficult to predict what the advantage will be. And there's some clear, um, you know, cases where there doesn't seem to be an advantage, like being told that you'll develop um, a terminal illness or very... um, uh, harmful condition in 20 years like you know you're better off not knowing about those kind of things so it's kind of a dilemma about this just sequencing everybody and, and seeing um, what the advantage will be and the cost now for the CAR-T treatment there, there's you know there's a lot of leukemia patients and, and they can benefit from this but the cost is extremely high to do this specific treatment now, the standard of care is still good enough for most, so that, that's still the logical approach to do, although the personalized approach might um, give more 
let's say security that that it could work um, but it requires just a lot of know-how of going through the whole process and so the know-how is being guarded and you know the bills are being presented which is the reason why it it costs so much and it's not something that needs to be scaled up that much because not everybody is becoming a leukemia patient as yeah. of now so um how society needs to interact with the scientists and the companies developing these theories uh the, these uh these therapies um there's still a lot of work to be done there and it's about who has the power to decide who's paying for that and who's not paying for that Dynasty, however, would be a direct-to-consumer kind of application. I assume very low cost. So, what are your? Could you maybe explain a little bit concretely about how does that work? I, exp- I, ex- uh, I expect it's kind of a low-cost application. And then you, how does this concept of yours work with protecting the the genome in that app? You had some interesting ideas about how you could do that. In general. Um, Once you have your genome sequenced, the first question is, where do you store that? Now, do you have it just encrypted on something like Dropbox or something like this? Uh, Researchers are now also working, like Tim Berners-Lee, the person that developed the first version of the Internet, of having a second generation of the Internet where the data and the uh, applications using the data are totally separated. So you can more easily ensure that you can keep data privately um, and then authorize either certain applications or other people or institutes to be able to access your data, but you always remain in control. So the the genomics app, Dynasty, where I want to work on would be something using this kind of second generation of the Internet where you already know that the the genome will be secured. I mean, I'm, I'm personally not working on this low level of technology, so I need other research to go ahead before I can further develop the, the idea that I want to do there. All right. Um, when we look at the, the general development of these technologies, uh, like the, the genome uh, applications, I'm wondering where do you see this is this is going to go in, in the future? Where where does we what should we expect from genome uh, technologies? Currently, there are a lot of expectations. When you read the last uh, editorials of the or perspectives of New England Journal of Medicine or or Science or Lancet, everybody's saying, yeah, it is promising, we should be cautious. But they're always giving some really hopeful examples of being able to to use some of this technology to really start diagnosing people at an early stage. And they always mention the combination of DNA together with some promising technologies like machine learning or artificial intelligence type of technologies. Do you think that we are at this currently, maybe first can you describe currently at this stage, what can we expect today if we would uh, have a genomic service both for health services and for hereditary services and what can we expect from it in the future? What can we expect from it today? How, How quickly could it be rolled out, you mean, or... 
can we today, because you speak of an application that, for instance, could Dynasty could, for instance, analyze your genome, give some advice on it. Is that something that we can expect when tomorrow I go to my healthcare practitioner and I present him my genome I have gotten from one of the companies? Do you think they could give me some uh, interesting diagnosis? Well, for that, you need to go to a, a genetic counselor at, at this point. Th this is the, the, the tricky thing, is, is that um, everyone will have uh, variants, disease-causing variants within their genome. Everybody has them, maybe a hundred or, or more. Um, they only become relevant if you have some, some kind of symptoms also indicating that that's actually playing out. Um, so this is the, the tricky thing about it, getting access to your genomic data and how do you deal with that. So if you just want to kind of have a report, you know, how should I live and what should I do, um, you definitely have to go to a genetic counselor and hopefully, you know, he'll tell you, well, you know, based on, you know, your present physique and condition and, and your genome, you look okay. You know, of course, you have some variants that that might become problematic at, at some point. Um, but I think that if you want your genome sequenced, you shouldn't do it to find out about how you will die <laughs> or what diseases you will get. But out of a general interest in how you're, you're put together, how, how your biology works, and, and learning about our human biology um, how food impacts that. Um, I guess this is a major topic. You know, obesity runs wild everywhere in civil, uh, civilized, let's say, countries. Um, but learning about how your genomic composition is might give you clues about what food products you would, you know, avoid better or not and how you can deal with that. Understanding where this constant hunger that you're feeling kind of comes from things like this, like learning about yourself. Uh, for that, you don't really need a, a genetic counselor at such a point, but I think it can already help you to improve your health and take that in your own hands. But you need to then have a program that, that protects you against um, information that you don't really need initially, unless you start developing some, some symptoms. Uh, and that you feel there might be a genetic cause, or your uh, your general practitioner, you might go with you know some problems, and your genome is already sequenced, and it's like, well, let's just have a quick look that this is nothing more serious, and then you don't need to wait three to six months before you get a result back, but you know you can just give you this kind of app, and he can get access to your gen genomic data and see like, well, no, you, you don't you don't look predisposed for this kind of symptoms link, linked to that disease or maybe yeah there is a link I, I will need to refer you to a genetic counselor so you can uh, analyze this further is that similar for the hereditary services do you present it to a genetic counselor and they can help you with that do you have similar expectations now should we have similar expectations now for for the hereditary you so mean if you already sequence your DNA or if you... Yeah, so if you go to a company and you ask them to see, to give your, your genome and then you would like to know more about your hereditary uh, history, 
would you say, okay, just go to one of those companies you, you have today on the market, or should you also go to a genetic counselor to give some advice on or, or information about where did you originally, where did you, your ancestors come from? Uh, well, yeah, so about investigating your ancestry, uh, th there's no issue in going into that except for maybe personal feelings about where you want to come from or not want to come from. Um, so you, you can already do this with these companies like MyHeritage that, you know, I have the package still still waiting for me. Um, I haven't done it because I'm personally also, you know, I have the dilemma about do I want to send my uh, saliva to Texas, but I also, like, do I really want to know? You know, I mean, we all come from, well, you know, the same place in Africa anyway. I kind of already know that. Um, so... Um, I'm more interested in like you know how do all the genes work in my body? How do they work together? Could I adapt my lifestyle to you know enjoy the possibilities of my body more or less? <laughs> what do you expect to happen then in the next five to ten years? Are these the kind of questions we will get an answer to already, or will it take longer? It's hard to do predictions, of course, but maybe some based on what you currently see uh, in your in the research area. Well, based on what. Um, healthcare costs and I mean you go to a dentist and you can already pay you know 100 euros for, for something simple and then knowing that for 200 euros you can get access to data that for the rest of your life can be there as you know supporting some decisions that you'll be making it doesn't look like that big of a cost anymore um, but I think the market of people that, like, you know, I'm very biased. I'm a researcher. I'm, you know, researching on how genes work. You know, of course I want to do that, you know, for my own genome. But, you know, somebody um, working anywhere else, not, not in science, not in biology, uh, probably just, you know, doesn't care unless they have a medical condition. So... I guess this is a big difference. So for me, I cannot make a prediction because I'm biased and I want to know. And I hope you want to know too, whoever's listening now. <laughs> yeah, of those uh, 10 people left, maybe only <laughs> only one is interested. Um, so if we if we talk about the future and if we talk about what, what's happening out there in the field, you've mentioned already a few times different stakeholders, different people. It seems to me, though, that healthcare is hugely fractured. It's very segmented. People don't talk to each other across disciplinary that often. It's starting to happen, but it's still at its infancy. You talked about genetic counselors. We talked about healthcare professionals having to give advice. You also gave me an example earlier about the fact that in your own lab, there is still a discrepancy between... Um, the developers and and the bio, the biologists so how do we how do you see this is it is it is it very fragmented still or do you see people are converging and multidisciplinary teams to to work on this together how could you could you maybe first describe the situation you told me as well in your own lab that's very interesting so in in the lab in in Kaus where i'm working now um, so we're working on these text mining tools to to um, process all this uh, medical medical papers, 
the people working on that, they have a computational background. They don't know anything about biology. And so when they're developing their tools, they're already, you know, they're happy when they get a certain kind of outputs. And, you know, if they have like 80% accuracy, they might be like, yeah, that's really good. But they cannot really measure the frustration that you experience while you're sifting through the results. And, um, you know, when is that exactly good enough or what results would you like to see? So in my lab, I'm one of the few people that has both a programming and a biology background now. So I try to develop something that, that, that I'm pleased with. I mean, I know my own frustrations very well. So I, I, I just, I, I start processing all, all the papers that are out there, trying to get to the uh, statements that, that I'm interested in and, and evaluating whether I'm already good enough or not. And then I keep working on this kind of program until I get it right enough for myself. So this is the difficulty when in a team you, you only have a certain type of people working there, either computer scientists or biologists, and they're not working together. That That's very problematic. But generally, since the last you know, four or five years, there's a lot of more efforts in getting these multidisciplinary teams starting to work together. I, I don't know how efficient they are yet and whether the um, the nature of work in academia where, you know, most of the workforce is a PhD student that has four years, maybe five years, they need to get first author papers, how that, that way of working um, makes multidisciplinary research also a little bit difficult because you know you need to argue about who's going to be the first author on this paper or that paper and and things like this so although everybody knows that we should be working together there's still political issues within academia to to get it to to the best way possible you've uh, explored some of these options together with uh, or with with in your startups as well, and also in your projects. Um, for instance, you've also worked together with. Uh, well, you've worked together in the past already with people from multiple disciplines. But could you maybe tell a bit more about some of the projects you worked on, or or in your startup where you try to work together with people from different uh, disciplines? Well, I, I didn't have a startup yet. You know, I I tried to pitch. Um, a possibility to start a startup. Um, now, now the fun thing in doing that is you need to put a, a team together, and then you think about all the requirements uh, you need to actually make that happen. So you you try to compose the team together that will get the job done. Um, so this is where academia and industry also differ from each other. I think you know that. In industry, the goal is very clear. You, you know where you want to end up, and you then make the team that makes that happen. Whereas in in academia, you're you know you're interested in a certain research question. You don't know where you will end up, and you need to be able to to publish on that. Um, and whenever you need to have um, a multidisciplinary team, and you don't know where you're going to end up, you don't know. Uh, what findings will bear the most weight and who will get the fruit from this labor. So this is, again, mm. then I think the, the problem. This is one of the 
This is one of the important parts that we also learn from um, from the design literature. However, so what I mean is that it's very important to work together on something you don't know yet what is coming out of it. So it is kind of a blind collaboration. However, when you look at the current evidence, I did a systematic literature review on the current e-health that is co-designed, and there is virtually nothing yet published on how to co-design genetic applications. Now, I completely understand that genetic applications are still at its infancy, but you could argue that already at this point, you should start to work together with people who think about what are what is the biological perspective, what is the perspective of the genetic counselor, what is the perspective of the patient, what is the perspective of the healthcare prof- professional, how he's going to interact with that in his medical informatics portal, how will patients see this as a result in their file, how, how will people interact with this information. So how do you propose we should uh, increase this uh, co-design or collaboration between people? Well, the first thing to increase co-design is, yeah, is the communication um, and, and getting to, to platforms, to moments, to interact together. So I myself, I um, participated in a, in a hackathon an MIT hackathon in Riyadh in, in Saudi Arabia, and I, I really enjoyed the, the process. Now, the, the starting point there was physicians. So physicians came with their problems as they see that for their patients, basically. So patients weren't really involved, but the physicians came, and then you had developers, tech developers, and then also legal people and uh, economists, and everybody then kind of thinking together. And at the end of the day, we're all patients. So I guess, you know, (laughs) the patients are involved in some sense. You know, we're all patients sooner or later. Um, But but yeah, there's also need to organize, I guess, these hackathons involving also patients and for very more specific uh, sets of problems because the hackathon in Riyadh was quite generally. Uh, Anybody could propose a problem and then then start uh, working on that. To stimulate collaboration, actually, you've also started to have a completely radical open source philosophy. So you are sharing basically all your work. People can go and find your profile on on GitHub. People can go and find your research on Google Scholar. Can you tell us a bit more about GitHub? Because there you have tried to at least share some interesting things already. What have you shared so far on GitHub? So you can find my work on GitHub dot com slash dicaso. Um, so I'm I'm radical in open source as um, uh, at least when I'm working in academia because in academia we're you know we're furthering the knowledge that we've all built up uh, together over centuries and, and so the, the this idea of keeping that locked up somewhere for the benefit of just a few individuals uh, while we're being sponsored by states and governments just doesn't sit well with me. So uh, at least when you're in academia, I believe you need to be open about the you know the results that you're getting, uh, the tools that, that you are making. Of course, there's kind of a trend where they want to economize universities. They want it to create jobs and uh, create spin-offs. But for me, that's not the original mission 
of academia. I actually like the academia where they were discussing theological arguments uh, in, in the beginning of when it when it all uh, got started up. Um, so I, for me, it's yeah fundamental that it stays open and that I share my tools. Um, also within the context of academia, where everybody at some level is working a little bit in their island, it's sometimes difficult to advance software projects because you know it's difficult to really work with a big team on uh, on one project. Only kind of the big institutes that are leading some of the research uh, in bioinformatics, for example, are able to to have long-standing software implementations that are broadly used by the scientific community. So for everyone else, I think it's you know important that you share the work that you're doing, and um, this way you might start up collaborations with people that are trying to analyze data uh, in a similar way. So for the, the text mining, I have, I have a program there called SINA, named after Ibn Sina, the very important uh, um, Arabic uh, uh, philosopher, very important for medical history also. So, so this tool you can just find under my Dicaso GitHub uh, account. And if anyone else is, is kind of working on this text mining and wants to be able to do something similar, they, you know, they can find me there and collaborate with me so there. So if people are interested on, on working together with you on, on Sina, what type of people are you looking for? What's what's Sina about? Maybe you can give a few things away. So Sina is just uh, about processing all the medical literature that you can find on, on PubMed and getting to the relevant statements about, about genes and, and their functions and doing some downstream uh, analysis on that. So people that you're looking for are developers, you know, bioinformaticians that are trying to tackle it the same way. Uh, also linguists that might be interested in scientific communication and how you, you get to specific linguistic constructs within those scientific papers that, that, that are, you know, the important ones. And then, of course, the biologists that are struggling to understand the the research problem that they're working on and to know what's already out there you know because so so much research is being done over and over again because we forget about what the researchers before us was doing because it's all there lost in those texts so maybe to end but what is currently on your mind christoph what is the what what are the burning uh, questions, or uh, either in philosophy or in your research, or maybe even your private life that you're trying to address now? Yeah. So most of my time at academia, I'm working on on this kind of tools, but I'm working on the tools because I have these um, research questions that I'm really fascinated about. So um, I'm I'm trying to further my knowledge on how those cancers work. So the neuroblastoma, how that links to breast cancer and specific subtypes. So to do that, I need to link with with gene functionalities that are mentioned specifically for those both diseases and how that interrelates. Maybe papers discussing both diseases at the same time and doing all of that automatically to get a summary out of uh, how they are linked and differ uh, from each other. And can you explain it to people who are not so familiar with the topic? So what is what, why are you interested in the link between these two cancers? Or 
Is it? Yeah. So again, it's actually a coincidence with um, my colleague that that got breast cancer while working on a gene that is related to breast cancer in neuroblastoma. So there, there is just you know to start with, it's quite an obvious thing. But then, you know, as I was thinking about this, you know, why why is breast cancer so prevalent? Why do those BRCA genes that create genomic instability, why do they specifically lead to breast cancer, you know? And why more women than men, you know? And um, in the end, it's because women have a monthly cycle. They have a continuous development going on every month, again and again. And neuroblastoma is a disease of a developing embryo. So it it looks like a good starting point to think that this has specifically to do with development leading to this kind of a, a situation. And so then you need to know what developmental genes, next to the ones that we're already interested in, are leading to this kind of a phenotype, the cancer, and specifically to the to the gene that that we are studying, and can we put all the puzzle pieces together? Now you know, scientifically, I think the reason is that these genes that have to do with genomic stability, I think that when they are not um, fully operational, um, that they help um, that the genomic instability helps to prolong the, the cell cycle. And specifically, there's a, a moment when cells are dividing that um, signals get put on there to say whether they should keep dividing or not. And because um, genomic instability and trying to repair DNA will shift these kind of phases, there might be more time in which the cells keeps telling himself, I'm doing a go- good job, I should keep going, although they have more damage, and they should think like, oh, we're already that damaged, we should just quit this. But, you know, because this kind of shifts their cycles, and they just keep going and going and going, dividing, 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 and this is how you get a cancer. And this is how it relates to the genomic damage. Not in the first place because it's creating mutations, but because it's shifting the way that the um, uh, the cycle is operating. Um, I, I have been watching the, the Chernobyl um, series, and, and the Chernobyl accident happened um, not, not just because they had um, extracted all the regulators within those... Um, nuclear um, uh, things <laughs> but because uh, during the day they had they had it working at a at a lower level of output and this uh, caused a certain poison to kind of build up and so because of this unexpected uh, consequence so not initially having more radiation but actually lowering the reactivity um, of that reactor, 
and then suddenly it 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 explodes and so i think you know something similar is happening in this kind of cancers with this kind of um uh, dna repair genes that the you know the uh, the mutations that you see that for a large part they're kind of this poison arising at uh, at the genome but they are not the end in themselves it's the fact that that the cell cycle is kind of shifting um, and and the regulation of it is then kind of also changing that causes the cells to keep dividing and then because they're dividing more and they are also you know having more mutations at some point you, you get also mutations that lock them in that state and then it just kind of explodes and you have this very dangerous uh, cancers. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, uh, well, not so great for those people. But um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really nice to, to have a, a long conversation with you and to be able to explore your research area deeper. And I hope that we can, we can talk again soon about this and maybe you can give an update then of, of how this quest of the 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 BRCA and the and the neuroblastomic uh, research is going yeah thank you very much Christophe thank you Peter also one more last uh, addition is uh, Christophe where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you what are the best places to get in touch with you well, you can just contact me through my GitHub account. Um, I will be happy to respond to any questions you, you have. What's the GitHub account? So github.com slash dcaso. Okay. Thank you very much, Christophe.